You are listening to the Barbara May Show, the place where we discuss all that really matters. We will cover all you need to know about lifestyle, health, spirituality, and plus so much more. Are you ready? Let's dive in. You are listening to episode four with Tatiana Ray. Tatiana is a lover of life. She's a public speaker, spiritual teacher, meditation teacher, and so much more than any title can describe. Tatiana has found her passion helping others realize the potential of their full self-expression to assist them in claiming their personal freedom. Tatiana cherished the celebration that we are art galleries filled with paintings that are our expression to as life. A life that becomes alive by choices. In this episode called Breaking the Rules, we will talk about shamanic upbringing, social domestication, freedom, love, and so much more. Hello, I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome to my podcast. My first question is, who is Tatiana Ray? Um, I am the one named Tatiana Ray. I was born into a shamanic family. So my father is Apache, American Indian, the tribe of Apache. Um, mostly our tribe was along the southern border of the United States, along the states of um, Arizona, Colorado, Texas and into northern Mexico, all those canyons. It's very dry. It's very arid. It's a, it's a difficult place to grow up in uh, environmentally. You know, there aren't that many trees. It's hot. Uh, it's desert. It's desert. But don't think of the desert like Saudi Arabia with sand. It's, it's just hot, dry terrain, rocky, very rocky, very hot, and very uh, damaging, very damaging. What was it like to grow up in a shamanic family? Um, for me, when, because I'm 69, I was born in 1951. So you figure by 1961, I was only 10. And that is when the hippie movement was beginning. So on one hand, I was saved. <laughs> Embarrassment. <laughs> because there was some acknowledgement of... Um, dried herbs there was some acknowledgement of um different crystals or stones on the ledges of the window you see um there was some acknowledgement of my mother was a very um um well white people would call it affectionate <laughs> but she was uh, you know she touched a lot and she would move the energy as she was touching you I love people, it. The children loved to come to the house because she was very affectionate, you know. But as she was hugging you, she'd get her thumb in your back or she'd massage your little neck, you know, and the children would just stand there and they loved it. Um, so on one hand, it was very normal to me, very, very normal, the way my mother believed in spirit, in animals, in the weather um plants she spoke to all the plants and they grew like crazy and oh that was another thing in those days people were just beginning to be in vogue to have plants in the home and i grew up in a virtual botanical garden um we had plants everywhere big huge plants little plants uh, my mother loved uh, african daisies and you know how difficult those can be to grow she had some with leaves that had like the diameter was 4 to 5 inches and but like I'm saying, it was some of the children in our neighborhood would walk around our house like, uh-huh, yeah, this is where, you know, the Solanos live. And they'd walk around looking at my house. And I knew that by the way they looked around at my house that it was not like everybody else's house, home. Um, so on one hand, I was very aware that we were different. On another hand, I was aware that there was some pride to that, you know, because they were in awe. And they were very drawn to it. And then there was another aspect where I could be a little bit embarrassed about it as a child. Because when I'd go into my friends' homes, they were very, very modern and clean. Not that our house was not clean, but I mean, devoid, devoid of plants, devoid of crystals, devoid of any rocks in the ceiling, you know, just spick and span homes. <laughs> but did you ever feel like that you wanted to have that modern life instead of your um, shamanic upbringing? No, no. It was very natural for me. Um, I have a, a couple of sisters that were uncomfortable with it. 
And for a while they left it. And then, you know, they went past their teens and their twenties and they reincorporated it. Yeah. Mm. But I was always very comfortable with the plants and the, especially the stones and the, and the crystals and um, the plants, especially today in my home, I have, um, when I want water them, I have 32 plants in my home. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds like a dream and it brings me, um, brings me to another thing, which um, I think is very important to mention that is very important where we grow up. It's very important what type of yeah. upbringing we are getting. And this is one of the topics you talk about a lot. Yes. Um, so can you open that a little bit? Yes. I speak about the nest energy, a nest as in baby birds and wherever we grow up, that is our nest. And this is what we are taught. So first of all, I want everyone to let go of the guilt. Let go of the guilt of how you do what you do, because that's what you were taught. You were taught um, that type of anger, or you were taught to handle the situation by getting cold and shutting down, or you, or you were taught to be, have to be effusive and very inviting to everyone around you and not have very good boundaries, let's say. You were taught this, okay? So when you leave this nest known as home, you're going to recreate the same thing because that's what you were taught. That's all you know. That's all you know. And so we really have to, I don't like to use the word forgive ourselves because that's so nebulous. What does that feel like? How do we do that? I think I, I like to say, become aware that you were taught how to deal with life. When you left your home, your nest, you recreate that. And you're going to recreate it exactly. There will be parts that are wonderful and they work for us. I was taught how to be timely. That's a wonderful trait. Um, I was also taught um, uh, to um, be on time, not just timely, but on time. Well, that's a good trait. But the way I learned it in my family, it was a little obsessive. Okay, so I, I, I tailored it so I can be on time. I can, of course, my job is everything about sessioning and appointments, but I don't obsess about it. If I'm late or the other person's late, fine, it, it works out. The meeting happens. Or you arrive five minutes before and then you're on time anyway, yeah. <laughs> but you yes. are not on time. <laughs> exactly. But there's not this obsessive compulsive um driving me like it used to when I left my home you know I'd get there early and I'd tap my foot I'd be tapping my foot where are they where are they you know they should be early like me we have a meeting in 10 minutes <laughs> and then there were parts of my nest that I let go of completely and a lot of that was it's not a confrontation it's a conversation you see I love that absolutely and love that in my family, I was taught, no, we're not communicating. We're, we're, this is a confrontation. We're talking. It's a confrontation. My way or your way. <laughs> <laughs> Our planet is an extension of paradise. You want to call it heaven, fine. But when I think of heaven, I don't think in terms of, uh, of Jesus. And that's where I'm going when I die. I think of heaven in terms of something paradisical. You see, something so beautiful that it's constantly encouraging me to live. Nothing about it, nothing about paradise tells me I'm doing it wrong. You see. And so when I feel very strongly, when we are born, we are born into this paradisical setting. We're born into a setting that says, yes, yes, yes. And as long as we keep saying more, please, yes. But we have to remember, <laughs> depending on, on your intentions, you see, on your intentions, it's going to give you what you are asking for. This wonderful, wonderful mother-father presence as energy just is waiting. It's waiting to fulfill our needs, just as we are as those of us who aren't parents, we have animals. I know all of us have an animal um, that we love very dearly, okay? And you're just waiting. You're just waiting to feed your little animal. You're just waiting to caress and hug your little animal or your child, you see, or your beloved. 
you're waiting, you're waiting. And that's how I see life. Life is waiting to fulfill. But you see, we get into these um, travesties and we get addicted. We get addicted to suffering. And in this addiction to suffering, we justify it by saying, I'm learning a lesson. I'm learning a lesson. Well, I'm sure you are, but that's not the intention of life. But if you're going to say, um, send me a bad boyfriend, here you are. And now send me another one that's going to betray me. Oh, here you are. Now send me another one that's going to break my heart. Oh, I have the perfect one for you. You see, but this beautiful, beneficent mother, father presence, this loving givingness as this organism, which we are a part of, is so happy, so delighted to fulfill our every desire. We're the one who's desiring it. Love that. Absolutely. I look at it from the point of view that we got given, the, and I told you this before, um, that we have started the interview, that we got given this body and we have the experience to experience mm. eating, the taste, the orgasm, the um, the warmth, the cold, and just like all these things we have, we are, we can see, we can be part of it. We can be part of this amazing circle. And I look at it as a blessing. So, so yeah, so that's why I absolutely admire. And I didn't came across anybody who I didn't came across anybody who shared this belief as well. So I'm well, very happy. I, <laughs> I, I love I love that we're, we're symbiotic in this because I consider myself a high priestess of sensuality. And people will say, well, what does that mean, sensuality? Because everybody immediately thinks about sex, which that would be a part of it, perhaps. But sensuality is different from sexuality. Sensuality has to do with perceiving through the senses of the body. It has to do with opening yourself to what is available in terms of what is being emitted sensorially. You see, you can, you can be in the ocean and you can be healed in that moment if you allow yourself to feel the caress of the, of the water and the brine, the fragrance of the brine, you know, and the sound of the splashing and, and how the water kind of ebbs and flows, that rippling sound of the wave, you know, that little swish, swish sound. All of this, all of this, if you allow yourself to open to this completely, will bring you to ecstasy. It will bring you to ecstasy. There is nothing else that can do this to us and for us. Nothing, nothing. If you look into the throat of a flower, any flower, you will see an absolute orgasmic in 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 motion in happening. It's in a it's a, you know bad English, but it's it's in a hap it's a happening. It's a happening. Even the simple little daisy, if you look at her little face and all the millions of little stamen that are there, mm -hmm. and then the color, and then how they feel, you see. And, and if you allow your body, you allow your body to participate as the welcoming mat of life, you see. But we don't. We're cut off. We're cut off. We dress ourselves up to our neck. Um, we, we don't allow ourselves to be hugged or kissed. We deem it inappropriate when someone is too huggy kissy. You see, depending on the cultures, which I understand and I respect, but every child enters this world, what? If they're blessed and they so choose, they enter a world where what? They're held all day. They're cuddled and coddled all day. They're put on the breast to eat. You see, they're swaddled. Everything about how we enter this world is an enormous sensorial adventure. And then we're cut off from it. I remember one of the things in school that was so um, 
sad for me. And I remember it, but I thought, I also remember, oh, well, I'm a big girl now. From, in America at least, from preschool through, I think it was like fourth or fifth grade, our books had pictures in them, lots of pictures. And then I remember when we went into, maybe it was fifth or sixth grade, the pictures ended and my books had writing <laughs> and there were no pictures. Even today when I purchase a book, if it has one little drawing or something, I'm so delighted. It's like, oh, they're giving me a visual. And of course, the words are supposed to give me a visual. The, the words are supposed to take me to a place. But when I can see what they're thinking also, that's a wonderful feeling. And I remember in school when my books stopped having pictures, I was so sad. Also, the recesses. When we were younger, we got recess more often. And you got to run outside and be in the sun or the, or the coolness. You got to move. You got to breathe. You got to yell and scream and, and play. And this, I remember, four, fifth, sixth grade, no, we got two recesses a day. You see, we were growing up. We were mm -hmm. growing up. We didn't need that anymore. No, that's not true. My body yearned. My body yearned to be a part of outside. Yeah, it's been cut away from us, hasn't it? I, for example, been playing with Barbies until I was 12 years old. And, and I loved it. And I think maybe even before I turned 12, um, nobody around was doing it. So I was doing it secretly. But I just liked it because I like to use my imagination. And I remember the last day until now when I put the Barbies down, and that was when I was 12 years old, and I said to myself, no, you're not touching them anymore because it's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. Yes. So yes. this is this bringing me into the domestication and about yes. how we follow the rules and how your childhood was absolutely incredible, I believe. So I, I, I can't judge, but I believe because of your upbringing. Yes. And it was full of freedom. It was um, full of free will, wasn't it? Yes. It was yes. about energies. It was, it was about being a child, being a human, being a soul in a body. And I absolutely admire that. Yes. I was allowed to be a child. I was allowed to be a child. But even in England, sorry to Jenna, even in England, yes. children go to school at age of four. I don't know how it's in America. But where yes. I grew up, we went to school when we were six. It's a big difference. I <laughs> don't even get me started on that. <laughs> In America, as long as you're potty trained, which means three, you can go to preschool, which is only three hours a day, uh, two, two or three days a week. I didn't believe in preschool. Oh, my children are not going to preschool. My children are staying home and being children. I'm not shipping them off even for three hours. There was nobody to play with. Mm -hmm. Do you know that I ended up putting my children in preschool? But I searched high and low. I searched high and low, high and low. And I finally found a little school that did not do any teaching. You went there and they played with the colors and they played with the... Um, the, the soap bubbles and the sand boxes and everything. Uh, but there was no sitting down to learn ABCs or to learn, you know, an actual teaching. I didn't want my children to be in school because once they went to kindergarten through 12th grade, they were going to be in school every day of their life for the rest of their life for 12 years. I didn't want my children to have that. And, um, and I, and I, was not forced, but my children needed to have social skills. They needed to interact with other children. So I ended up, I ended up putting them in preschool so that they could interact. But I researched and I found a little preschool close by that all they did was equipment and things like this. Which you had to do that. And I suppose, um, like you said, they didn't have anybody to play with. Um, then <laughs> you don't want them to be behind in the sense that socially. I look, yeah, socially behind. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, because uh, when I was a child, when we didn't go to school, we had little friends that didn't go to school yet either. <laughs> you know, and, and we played in the front yard as our mothers were busy in the house. 
you see. And one of the mothers would have one of the, would be a lookout, you know, and so she would sit on the, on the stoop and watch us little children playing, you see. And, and every day one of the mothers would take turns. I don't know how they decided it, but, you know, I, I do know there was always a mother there supervising us, but we were the little children that didn't go to school yet. Mm, you know? and follow to to society. Yes, and to go to school was a big treat. We'd see the bus come up and, oh, those are the children that go to school, you see. <laughs> but still, I had interaction. I had integration with, with my peers, you see. My children didn't have that. I literally, there were no children because so many of the parents worked. So the children were put in preschool to be tended to, you see. And so how can we nurture the inner child? Oh, encourage your child when your child is speaking. When your child is, is sharing, listen. Listen to what they have to say. Listen and listen with intention. Listen uh, with... Um, Listen with your heart and your soul. Don't look at it, oh, the, 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 you know, it's just a little kid talking to me. Kid. And don't call him a kid. That's a baby goat. Okay? A kid is a baby goat. They're children. They're children. And they're not raised. You raise corn. They're reared. <laughs> and I think this is very important. You hear everybody saying, my kid, my kid. No, I always imagine little baby goats, you know? <laughs> No, I have children. I don't know about you, but I have children and I have a child, you see. But I say that because there, I have respect for this being. I have respect for what they have to share. I have respect for their point of view. I have respect for how they're discovering the world. How many times has your child spoken about something in the environment that you're in and you don't know what they're talking about? And you have to keep asking questions. My, my son was four. And he said, Mommy, why did that man have a smoking volcano? And I said, what? He says, a smoking volcano. And I, I, we had left the market. And I looked around and he couldn't find him anymore. So I thought, I didn't know what he was talking about. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sorry. But if we see him with a smoking volcano again, tell me. A few weeks or months later, we were in some other place. And he goes, there, mommy, there, there's a smoking volcano. It was a pipe. <laughs> the man had a pipe. And the little inverted part where you put the tobacco in was a little volcano. It was shaped like a little mountain to Zachary, a little upside down mountain. And he called it a smoking volcano. Isn't that, isn't that, just, isn't that just so miraculous? So imaginative, a smoking volcano. To this day, I don't call them pipes. They're smoking <laughs> volcanoes, you see. And, and, and my son gave me that perspective. He gave me that new way of looking at a pipe. It's a pipe. You know, can you hear, um, Barbara, can you hear the energy drop? Oh, it's a pipe. It's a pipe. But a smoking volcano rises. <laughs> you see, oh, that's a smoking volcano. Oh, he has a smoking volcano. He doesn't have a pipe. So we, you encourage your child by taking them seriously. Yeah, I think it's very important not to not to kill their spirits because yeah. um, because then they're just gonna be domesticated and then they're gonna be um, cut out <laughs> in the shape. Um, I always uh, which we don't want them to be if that makes sense yes but I, I did tell my children I, I did say I was very specific about telling them in our home we do this in our home this is how we do it in our home this is how I see it when you go into the world and I would say that I would use that term when you go into the world it won't necessarily be like this when you go into the world not everybody believes this way when you go into the world, don't forget this is how you feel. And I was very clear with them that there were two worlds and they lived within two worlds. They lived within our nest and they lived within the world. 
it gives a sense of freedom and also a sense of opportunities. So there is so many opportunities out there, isn't it? And it gives them yes. freedom to choose from, which I think yes. is fantastic. So you have given your children choices. You show them they have choices. Choices. And I've always told them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, uh, it may not work out, but don't be afraid that it's not going to work out. Do it. And you're not going to know if it works out or not until you put your heart and soul into it. Put your heart and soul into it. Well, how do I know if it's right? You don't know. You don't know until you completely commit and devote yourself. And then at that point, if it's not feeling uh, right for you, then you can make a choice based on your on your feelings because you know you committed, you know you devoted yourself, you know you gave everything, and it still feels topsy-turvy to you, fine, let it go. I notice children cry a lot. They whine. I shouldn't even say cry, but they whine a lot. I was at the pool just a few days ago, and there was a mother and father with their daughter. She was about three and a half, four years old. And for everything that she wanted, she whined she whined slash cried. She whined cried. <laughs> you know, um, come over here with daddy. Well, I don't want to. You know, come over. Let's do, yeah, do ah, ah. it. was this constant. She didn't have a voice. And they encouraged it because that was the language they were teaching her because that is what they responded to. They allowed her to communicate in this way. That's not, that's a disservice to who we are as energy. That little girl is intelligent. That little girl is courageous. That little girl's an imaginative child, you know. And for her to think that this is her voice, for her to believe that this is how you communicate, she may grow up and start to use her voice when she goes to school. But I can tell you, it's already, she's like a little tea bag being dipped, okay? When she goes into relationships, she's going to whine. She's going to use that whine, cry voice. She's going to. She can't help it. It's going to just come out of nowhere. Also sounds like that the parents probably would not respond to any any other sentences. But if she whines, then they would respond to that. Because Absolutely. Then they respond. They respond because she's whining. They respond because um, she, she must have what it is she's... Um, located yes so the reason the reason why i wanted to talk about children is because um the children are where everything starts yes i love your quote Mm -hmm. um which i can't quote now because i don't remember exact words but you are saying that the children are too precious to be and continue please (laughs) to be the children are too precious to be left in the care of adults Children are too precious to be left in the care of adults. Children, children are, 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 they're new, they're virgin, they're precious. They have nothing holding them back. They have all their visions and their dreams and their desires just bursting out of them like popcorn. And, and, and at every turn, they get, they get thwarted. They're constantly being thwarted. And the word, the the specific word, you'll notice I'm very big on words because all we have, and I don't mean to diminish it, but all we have to communicate are words, words, verbiage. So we must be very, very conscious of the, that's why I do not have kids. I do not have baby goats running around my home. I have children. I have a child, you see. Um, And so... These children come into our lives and they're, they're so ready to live. They're so ready to be inquisitive. They're so ready to, to understand and to explore. And their sense of exploration and curiosity, thus imagination, is thwarted. It's truncated. They forfeit their ability to be free. And to really be free means that your self-expression is not dependent on anything outside of you. My son son once had a birthday party and I took him to a a place called Adventure or something. 
and it was very tactile, very, very tactile. They had ropes you could swing in, and they actually had a mud pit, <laughs> like mud, big, huge mud lake. <laughs> and I, I put it in the birthday invitation, send your children in really nasty, grubby clothes, if because if they choose to go in the mud pit, <laughs> then I'm going to, they have a place I can hose them off. And we'll redress them, okay? And so all the moms sent the little boys in all these little raggedy clothes. It was so cute. They were so excited to see the mud. The first thing they saw was the mud pit. Only one of the boys would go in it immediately. He just waded right in. I'll never forget. I'll never forget. He just waded right into it, right into that mud pit. And he was wallowing in the mud pit. And all you could see the children. And they were only nine. They were nine. At nine years old, Barbara, at nine years old, they were already inhibited. You could see them at the edge of the pit. You could see that they were dying to go in. And they wouldn't let themselves because they were going to get dirty. And I would encourage them, it's okay. Your mom sent you in raggedy clothes. I have the hose over here. They have a place that will wash you off. And then there's this little place you can go get dressed in here. This little cabana. You can go and change your clothes into clean clothes. They got their feet in there. They waded maybe up to their ankles. Nobody, nobody went in except for this one child. Mm-hmm. Nine years old, little boys, so spirited, so happy. And they would not go near the mud pit. And yet that was the first thing they spied. And, and I can see how there was some energies there, some little boys that, uh, that that wasn't appealing to, you know. My son was one of those. It, it really wasn't appealing because he, he could have gone in, but it, it wasn't appealing to him. Let's see. It, it, it truly wasn't. Um, but for most of the boys, they at least wanted to experiment but they wouldn't even let themselves experiment you see and this is what i'm talking about we lose our ability to be curious do you know what that does to this us as a human being to, uh, i'm assuming that mostly our our audience is is women right now okay so i'll speak to the women um but i'm sure this can apply to men who are listening as women, to lose our curiosity means that we lose our ability to look at our body. We lose our ability to dress ourselves, um, um, not accordingly, but uh, uh, to, to experiment, you know, to experiment with colors, to experiment with styles, to experiment, um, uh, to dress our homes. We lose our ability to go beyond what is the norm in a neighborhood that's domesticated, you see. I have a lovely friend. In America, we have what's called a living room, uh, which is usually proper for guests. And then we have what's called a den, where you'll put the television and the couches and everything. And generally, our living room is the largest room, but we don't use it because how many times we have proper guests? When we have guests, we all go in the den. We all congregate around the kitchen in the den. So she put a pool table in her living room. It's great. It's no longer a living room. It has a pool table and it has uh, this, uh, the, those TVs that go in the, in the wall and she has the tumbler chairs. And you walk into her home and instead of seeing a couch and proper lamps and everything, you see a big pool table. But that's what I'm talking about. Who says a home has to be configured the way everybody else is configuring it? You see. She's using her imagination. We lose our ability. We, we, we no longer are in touch with ourself and how we want to express. And that's all we have. I think there is um, also um, like a feeling of being judged. I, for example, have been wearing so many beautiful dresses and so many, sorry, so many beautiful dresses, so many accessories, heels and whatever. But when you get married and you have a children, you need to have a comfortable shoes because you need to walk them to the school and then you need to do that and then you need to do that. And then you end up um, with all these clothes in the wardrobe 
But you wearing the same three t-shirts a week, <laughs> which which cover literally everything, just in case, because yes. you're a mother, so you're oh, not you, supposed you, to do no, that. You don't have breasts anymore. Yeah, no, you don't. <laughs> and the shorts are too short, so they need to go into leggings. And that kind of, you just create that, the hair goes up, and that's it. You disappear, you become invisible. Invisible. Absolutely. And we are going to do a podcast on the invisible woman. Yes, because this is part of my notoriety, if you want to call it this. Um, I'm, I'm very famous for that, you know, oh, she pushes the envelope and she doesn't dress her age, you know, and how dare she do this? And, oh, I can't believe she's doing that. And well, you also have a, you also have a younger husband. Yes. Yes. How I'm dare 69. you? <laughs> Oh, that was the biggest travesty. <laughs> yeah. How old is your husband, Tatiana? He, he's 41. He'll be 42 in November. And I turned 69. Actually, he's at the very end of the month, uh, year, and I'm at the very beginning. So although I turned 69 in January, he's 41. He'll be 42, which makes us 27 years apart Shocking. in November. He's 27 years <laughs> younger than me. So he is... Nine years younger than my eldest son and nine years older than my youngest son and four years older than my middle boy. Mm -hmm. So he's 41 and my middle boy is 38. This marriage is about enjoying each other, you see. And you hear the term, my best friend. Is he my best friend? Yes, but he's more than my best friend. He's a place where... I express everything I'm capable of expressing in that moment, sexually, sensually, intellectually, um, uh, imaginatively. You know, I run things past him. Um, just the other day, he made me laugh. We were walking and he, we were quiet just walking. And then he says, you know, I really love being with you. And I said, yeah, thanks. And he goes, because being with you is like being with nobody. <laughs> I knew what he meant. I knew what he meant because we were just so quietly, each in our own little thought space, walking along, holding hands, and feeling the evening air. And it was very peaceful. And yet we could share it. So I knew what he meant. But I love how he phrases things. Being with you is like being with nobody. <laughs> You know, this is this is what I'm talking about. It's so important. This is actually not what I'm talking about. But this is what you are talking about. It's so important to be happy the way you want to be happy, not the way somebody tells you to be happy. So if you do want to marry somebody who is 20, 30, 40 years older or younger, if you do love him, just do it. Do it for yourself. Don't do it for society. Yes. yes. And if you want to wear that short dress and you are um, 69 years old, do it. I, I love there. I wish I had saved it and I didn't. It was a documentary. I'm sure I could find it. They were actually English. They were English and they interviewed three women. The one that struck me the most was her husband was 27 years younger than her. At the time of the interview, she was 98, I think it was. So if she was 98, subtract 27 is what? How old was her husband? Hold on. 98 subtract 27 equals, he was 61. 71. 71. 71. <laughs> Good. And, and, and I listened very, it was a little documentary about women marrying younger men and, and still being married. And what I loved what she said is when they got married, he was 25 uh, plus 27. So she was what? Uh, 40, 50 something. And she said <laughs> the way the English always do. I love the way you guys, she says, yes, we raised a lot of eyebrows. He was 25 and I was 27 years older. And here we are, we're still married. I do recall she was 98. And she said, and everybody who resisted are either dead or we've proved them wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, and he was 25. When I married my husband, he was 30. He was 30 and I was 57. Yes, you see, but he's an old version of 30. 
And I essentially am a younger version of, and at the time, 57. So we meet in the middle. We meet in the middle. So to the audience, I say, there's always something that you're contemplating. There's something that you're contemplating, even if it's about putting in a flower bed. And you say, well, I don't know about the weather. I'm waiting for this. Do it. Do it. And if the flowers, if the damn flowers die because a frost comes, they die, but you did it. You see, you had the, you had the day in the soil. You had the day imaginatively planting your little plants. You, you had that moment. Which we want all these guarantees for everything we involve ourselves with, Barbara. We want guarantees. And I'm saying, no, it's not about a guarantee. It's about the moment and, and immersing yourself. Plus, learn how you love. What kind of love are you? you? We need to begin to get more familiar with our flavor of love because we don't all love the same way. I know that my love is very fraternal. I have a very fraternal love. Um, and that can be very um, confusing for people. I had to I had to understand that. And now that I do, it's, it's understood. And what I mean by this, and to the audience, take this into consideration about how you love, meaning my fraternal love means that when I'm with someone, like I'm with Barbara right now, and I am in love with this opportunity. I'm lit up like a Christmas tree. I'm so excited. And she can feel that we are one. We're organically connecting. And I do. I connect organically to every person that's in front of me. But then what can be misunderstood is, oh, I thought I was your best friend. Oh, I thought I was special. You are when you're in front of me. When you're here with me, you are. You are that special. But I love fraternally so it can be difficult for my children it can be difficult for my husband you know we'll be at dinner and if somebody walks by I say oh come join us come join us and he goes under his breath oh god you know <laughs> another one <laughs> yeah. you know and 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 I am so excited to have more people at the table to my husband he loves very um on point he likes the family or he likes me and I've learned to understand that and respect it, okay, to respect it. Because otherwise, I would always be inviting people to our table. That's how I love. So begin to, one of the first places you want to start, audience, is you want to begin to look at how do you love? What flavor of love do you have? Are you a specific type lover? Are you a lover that needs passion? Are you a lover that uh, uh, loves through honor? Are you the type of lover that uh, loves through wisdom? Generally, if you love through wisdom, you need some elegance in your life and you need some elegance in your relationships and your relating. There's a wisdom there. So there's, there's this beautiful elegance that is happening. Okay. If you love passionately, then all that means is you need challenges. You like relationships. You like, you like situations in your life that, that, that challenge you, that pull the best out of you, you see. Um, I'm thinking about, oh, my husband is a, is a generous lover, generous. And you, you can say, well, he doesn't want somebody at the table. No, it's not that kind of generosity. He loves to share himself. And when he feels like it and he shares himself, he's like this wonderful king at a banquet, you know, that's how he loves. But you, you want to understand that the way you love can be misinterpreted. So my husband can be seen as, he's pretty stupid. He's always spending his money on other people, <laughs> you see. No, that's not it at all. He's generous. He loves the feeling of sharing, okay? As I mentioned about myself, people can feel like, whoa, she's so fake. She goes around saying hi to everybody. No, I mean it, okay? Someone who, who loves through honor, that particular person, uh, needs honor reciprocated. They honor and they want a situation where they can honor and be honored and they can honor and be honored. You see. 
So this happens with our children too, with our little children. We want to begin to understand what do they need? How do they need to be loved and understood? Some children are more tactile. Some children are more auditory. Some children are more affectionate than others. Some children need words, you see. Some children don't necessarily need words, but they love music. I, one of the things that I've always enjoyed was we naturally soothe ourselves through rocking, through rocking. So when I'm with um, anybody that seems to need some soothing, I'll say, okay, let's rock. And Yeah, what do you mean, let's rock? I go, no, let's come on, let's rock. You know, close your eyes, let's rock. And it's without going into all the things about the brain, but it affects the brain. It soothes the brain and it soothes the body. The body connects to the brain and you feel soothed. That's why children will do it. Mm -hmm. And children will do it what? Automatically. Automatically. And also, I don't know, when you're very happy, I know when my husband and I are going to make love, if he's just holding me, you know, and he's just holding me, I know that if we're just holding each other, we'll automatically begin to rock. We'll automatically begin to do this little rocky, rocky thing. Another thing that will happen to me is I'll start to make a sound and I've caught myself and now I just let me do it and I'll listen to myself and I'll go, mm, mm. and it's, it's, it's not a groan, it's not a moan, it's just this little rocky sound that comes out of my throat as I am soothing and feeling safe. My body starts to hum, you see. These are all the places we want to sensorially begin to allow ourselves to go. Let yourself go there. How many of us make love? <clears throat> Excuse me. How many of us make love? And it's wham, bam, thank you, man. And, and we're kind of happy because we either want to get to sleep or we've got to get back to the children or the children are coming home or you understand? How often do we appreciate? Many times when marriages are not going very well, it's because there hasn't been time made to appreciate. And really, you're missing the person that you were originally attracted to. You miss them. You miss them. And yes, now we have children and we have work and we have the dog to walk. We all get home and the dog hasn't been walked, you know. Yes. But we really must honor who we fell in love with. Who did we fall in love with? I don't know if you have experienced this, but when you do the appreciation of the person, you can stop the time. The time just stops, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's amazing. And and even like now when you're talking about appreciation, if you recall those certain moments, you do remember them because the time when the time stopped, it was so powerful that it created a memory and the memory is still within you, right? Yes, you can call it back. I call it touchstones. 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 And I, I encourage my clients to have a touchstone for certain things. Uh, like if the marriage is a little bit rocky or this relationship, get a touchstone you, so you can remember, oh, yes, oh, yes, this is why I fell in love. This is who I'm attracted to. This is how I like when he is. So it's not holding him or her to a specific way of being forever, but there is, there is a deliciousness that you originally were attracted to. And that deliciousness never leaves. It just gets overshadowed. So, Tatiana, the last thing which I would like to talk to you about is um, the balance um, between um, feminine and masculine. Yeah. How there is so much feminism at the moment and how there is the female power and how the man get put down and literally torn apart <laughs> for being a man. They don't even do anything and they just get told off. And I just love um, your belief 
and um, your teachings about the balance? Um, I grew up with sisters. I had one brother. It was myself and my brother. Uh, we were born back to back. I was only a year and a few months when my brother Anthony was born. So I don't remember life without him. And then my sisters came along, three sisters. So I really feel I grew up with, with women because Anthony was completely overshadowed. You know, there was my mother and four women. My father traveled a great deal. Um, Anthony was very artistic, so he spent a lot of time in his room. So I was never really influenced by having a brother. I grew up in my mind and feelings with sisters. Um, then it's, <laughs> it's very interesting. Uh, we all had boys. We all had boys. My brother had the two girls. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but we all had we all had male children, and having male children opened me up to such an understanding and an appreciation of the male and the masculine. Um, it was a world that I realized I didn't know anything about. It was a world that I had been prejudiced against, and I don't mean just negatively, just every day little tiny prejudices, you know, boys don't cry or boys are tough. Or, you know what I mean, little prejudices. How cruel, how cruel that is, right? Oh, my God. And what I discovered was, and this is something that I really, really, as part of my message, men are just like us in terms of feelings, but they express them differently. Okay? I have seen my sons um, break up with a, a woman or a girl. And I've seen them weep, just weep at a broken heart, at a sense of betrayal. I've seen them just fall to their knees. I'm thinking of my son, Zachary, in particular. Uh, he broke up with his girlfriend and he moved back home while he was transitioning and was getting rather snippy. And I knew why. So I, you know, I ignored it. But one day he crossed a boundary in how he replied to me. And he was 20, 20, 21. And he crossed a boundary and I snapped at him. I said something about don't you bump, bump, bump as like a mom, boom, you know, and he looked at me and he came and he hugged me to say, I'm sorry. But in the moment that he hugged me, he started to cry and he just let himself weep. And he, he was too, he was too big for me. <laughs> and we fell, we fell down on the ground and I just held him and I rocked like when he was little. And I could see his heart just bleeding, just bleeding. And uh, my heart had bled like that before for a man, you know. So men, boys, feel what we feel. They just have not been allowed to bring it with them. They've been retrained into that they don't have these feelings, that they don't know what they're doing, that, that it's a weakness, that it's something to be ashamed of and embarrassed by. By the same token, we as women think we're in our feelings. We are not in our feelings. We are not in our, We're angry bitches. Okay? You think you're in your feelings. No, 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 no. You are not. You are emoting you are emoting, but you are not feeling. When we feel it's something pure, uh, even anger, even anger is pure and it's in the moment, okay? You don't drag up the past. You don't start trying to hurt and, and, and injure and wound, okay? If you're really, really uh, angry, uh, your, your, your heart is broken. You're upset, you see, and that's what you communicate. So with men, I have discovered that it's, it's very interesting in any of my workshops, and I, I work a lot with uh, transitional youth, injured youth, um, children that have been kicked out of schools and they're put together to continue their education. In California, we call it continuing education. In Portland, uh, I forget, they have a different name for it. When I work with these children, they're the ones that are tattooed and pierced and the radical hairstyles, etc. You know, the radical makeup, etc. I wasn't told, don't touch them. 
And I put them in a circle. So I worked with them every period. I had like 30 children. They would miss class. They got to come be with me. And I put them in a circle facing in, and I walked around the circle so everybody could see me at some point. And they weren't just in this traditional straight lines, okay? Break the tradition. Break the tradition. And I would hug them from behind, and I'd put my my chin on top of their head. And when I left, I'd kiss the top of their head. And there was a lot of giggles. And, and these children are in high school, okay? So anywhere from freshmen to seniors. These children have had, in the case, I can use this word with them, traumatic experiences, traumatic experiences, murder, rape, drugs, incredible experiences in terms of family life. They look hard. They look, um, their disposition is that of, don't fuck with me. Don't bother me. And yet when I walked around and I touched them and I hugged them and I put my, my chin on top of their head as I was talking, you know, their whole body would soften. But mostly it was the young men. The young men, men in particular, it's very, very difficult because they have testosterone. So they have uh, a necessity a necessity to express that sexually. It's true. It's true. But they haven't been taught that if they're loved and honored as a male, that they can then understand that they have this internal drive to procreate that can be honored. Okay. That can be honored. This, this natural drive to have sex procreate is there it is there no denying it but at the same time as a human being that is there also you see so all of these young men were 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 yearning for touch that was that was clean that the intention was um, no baggage behind it, that I wasn't some perverted woman touching them, uh, that I wasn't trying to entice them. They could feel that I was genuinely enjoying their presence and their contribution, you see. And also, when I would choose Johnny to speak, I usually held him or I put my hands on his shoulders and it gave him the confidence to speak to the circle. It gave him the confidence. In other words, my hands on his shoulder were telling him, I believe you. I want to hear what you have to say. Oh, isn't that interesting? Say more. And he would. And all of these monosyllabic children would suddenly become very, very expressive and joyful, and, and, and the sharing, and the wisdom that came out. And I remember in particular, one boy asked a question. It happened to have been an all-boy circle, man, male, young boy. And one of the children asked a question, and I, I never pretend to know what I don't know. And I said, I remember saying, gee, I don't know. That's a great question. What do you guys think? And the answers that came forth were, mind-boggling, mind-boggling. And these are children that are engaging in, in mindless sex and mindless drugs and broken homes. And half of them, even if they're in continuation school, are not attending the school. They're going to end up hurt and hurt people. But in that moment that they were safe and they could speak from a place of self the wisdom that they shared and they were capable of sharing was incredible, incredible. And I have a few children, they're, they're men now, that will send me an occasional email or they're my friends on Facebook. And it's not that I need to hear this, but it makes me happy to see that it affected them enough to turn the tide that they could feel for one moment that they were wise, that they were capable, that they, that they were literate in the sense of sharing, 
feelings and sharing ideas. They weren't bumps on a log. They weren't these poor little creatures that had had all of this traumatic life. They were people. And this is why our children are too precious to be left to the care of adults. Because so many of us are so busy, we don't take them seriously. We don't take each other seriously. <laughs> so, so boys are tender beings. Now, I've often heard women say, we broke up and, you know, I still have a broken heart and there he is out playing basketball. It's true. It's true. But the way a male will generally process unrest is that he gets active. He's not trying to deny that he's hurting, but he uses his body to process the pain. Whereas females will process pain by uh, conversations and, and community. They'll call the girlfriends, they'll get together, they'll go to lunch, they, they, get, they get their little coven, <laughs> you know, and they get together and process that way. Males, not that they won't be with other males, but they will get physical. I would see my boys, they'll, they'll go surfing or they'll go snowboarding or they'll go play basketball, you know. They're still hurting but they get physical to help them. So it's very important with our little boys. If they cry, they cry. One thing that I do see that we go overboard one way or the other, let the child guide you in what they need. And then there's common sense. When my children would fall down, I'd stand there and look at them. And they'd look up at me. I'd say, oh, did that floor get you again? Yeah, the floor got me again, you know. And they <laughs> oh, would hit that. the floor. Yes, you know. If I saw that they hurt themselves, I'd go down to their level and I would let them cry. And then I'd say, but there's no blood. No blood. Mm -mm. Can you move it? And I'd go, like, can you move it? Yeah, I can move it. Okay, let's go. So there was compassion that they scared themselves but unless they were really hurt i did not encourage a lot of coddling i embraced the moment i made note to them that i was there and i'm aware that you've got scared or that you did get a boomp but moving on we teach our children resilience and I think this is the most important characteristic that we can share with one another is resilience. And resilience doesn't mean ignoring. Resilience means you go, uh, you're in the eye of the storm. You know, you're in the storm. You're in whatever you're in. But you have faith. You have faith. And when you come out of the situation, <sighs> You're breathing hard, but you know it's going to be okay. You have resilience. Thank you so much, Tatiana. Thank you. <laughs> Where can listeners find you and get in contact with you? Oh, thank you. Yes, I always forget. Okay, bear with me. Okay. <laughs> Do I say at? Yes, I say at, right? Okay, so <laughs> at 1-800, the numbers, 1-800-RENT-A-GODDESS. That's my Instagram. Um, and my webpage? No, my yes, website. Well, yes. Yes, so uh, thank you. <laughs> Is Tatiana, I'll spell it, tatianaray.com. So T-A-T-Y-A-N-A. Capital R A E Tatiana Ray dot com, and I always give out my my number. It's my cell. I have no problem. I have no problem with somebody calling me. I really don't. You know, if I'm not available, they'll leave me a message. It's in America. <laughs> it's in California. So it's seven one four six one five one eight one three seven one four. Six one five one eight one three. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you have enjoyed this episode and that you have gained a lot of information. As I have just launched this podcast, I have decided to give two lucky listeners a free psychic reading each month for the period of next three months. These readings will be a combination of a tarot and a psychic channeling. To enter, all you need to do is leave a review in the iTunes store, take a screenshot of it, send it to me on barbaramayshow at gmail.com, which is B-A-R-B-R-A-M-A-Y-S-H-O-W at gmail.com. As you may already know, um, reviews are very important for podcasts and they will help podcasts to expand and direct the important topics discussed to the appropriate audience. At the end of every month, I will announce the winner on my Instagram, which is at the Barbara May Show. So keep your eyes peeled and I cannot wait to see you on the next episode.